We're just trying to change the world here, people. Oh, really? If you wish to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. If you're scientifically literate, the world looks very different to you. It's not just a lot of mysterious things happening. There's a lot we understand out there. And that understanding empowers you. If you base medicine on science, you cure people. If you base the design of planes on science, they fly. If you base the design of rockets on science, they reach the moon. It works, bitches. Welcome back to O'Reilly Radio 137. This is the B-Side, recorded Friday, December 23rd, 2016, where we dismantle the current events for your edutainment through mostly rational conversations that make you go, O'Reilly. Oh, I'm your host, Andy Cowan, and I still have my usual suspects, Stephen Griffith and Fred Sims. Welcome back, gentlemen. I feel like I never left. Yeah, it could be because you didn't actually leave, but then we're breaking the fourth wall, which I suppose is fine, too. So... Uh, if you find any mistakes in the things that we're going to talk about here, you can help us by correcting us. Uh, please go ahead and send us an email at overlyradiopodcast at gmail.com or phone it in at 470-222-6759. And we'll play that voicemail right on the show. Alrighty. So into the science. <clears throat> so things that I've always wanted to say. Uranus might be full of surprises. No? How, how satisfying was that, Andy? It, I don't know. I, I found it kind of satisfying. But he cleared kind of, his voice for that. Kind of, kind That's of how satisfying that was. Oh, so satisfying. Oh. Anyway, yeah. So there's an, an animation here that I'm going to play and uh, <laughs> as we can talk here. Uh, oh, it's uh, not available. Never mind. Okay. <laughs> There's animation that we're not going to play. Oh, come on. Come on, guys. Oh, well. No one wants fun. to see that video of Uranus. <clears throat> see, they're all dying. Was that satisfying? That that sounded a little satisfying. It did. And but yeah, look, it kind of popped. I have to say the joke of this is, look down at the link that's on this page after the first paragraph. You can earn $13,000 a year selling your poop, which I've looked into before, and there are strict guidelines <laughs> To doing so, I, I believe we've actually mentioned it. On yeah, the we, show we've too. talked yeah. about it on the show. Yeah, that's. But I love uh, like, you know, that was put there on purpose. Oh yeah, like, oh yeah, this is on purpose. Anyway, so scientists <laughs> used to think that things were pretty chill over in the south hemisphere of Uranus. God, you know, I can't even read this article. Yeah, just the Uranus. way they've written it, <laughs> Uranus. No, no, no. I, I, yeah, I know, but no. <laughs> All right, that's fine. I'm I'm back to being 12 years old. Come on, this is this is what I get for Christmas this year. Okay. <clears throat> in fact, they thought it was one of the calmest regions of any of the gas giants. But in analyzing images taken nearly three decades ago by NASA's Voyager 2 spacecraft, researchers think that they have found a kerfuffle of activity. <gasps> yes, that poor owl. That's right. Which might indicate that there's something unusual about the planet's, in, planet's interior. Um, planet appears to be stark, featureless. Uh, even to scientists able to find more lively features of the gas giant, it was still considered pretty bland. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But when the University of Arizona astronomer Eric Karkosilacha, close enough, yeah, uh, took another look, he saw a different story. He presented his findings this week at the meeting of the Division for Planetary Sciences of the American Astronomical Society. Um, 
Kharkov believes that Uranus's southern hemisphere rotates in a way never before seen in gas giants. That's that's almost like like a BuzzFeed headline kind of thing. You'll never believe what this gas giant is doing. A gas plant's thick atmosphere filled with clouds typically shows the same rate of rotation at the top and the bottom, but on Uranus it seems the southern hemisphere is cycling much more quickly than up north, as much as 15% faster. Quoting, the unusual rotation of high southern latitudes of Uranus is probably due to an unusual feature in the interior of Uranus, <laughs> said in a statement. While the nature of the feature and its interaction with the atmosphere are not yet known, the fact that I found this unusual rotation offers new possibilities to learn about the interior of a giant planet. So, aliens? You know, it, it, there's always the possibility, because like you said, when... Should we send a probe to Uranus? Well, when Absolutely. Stephen tried to correct you <laughs> on, you know, Uranus versus Uranus, and you said, no, I'm a 12-year-old boy That's again. right. There's always the possibility that this scientist is also a 12-year-old boy and just wanted to put out a study talking about unusual features in the interior of Uranus. It's, it's so satisfying to say. I don't care what, you, what anybody says. Yes, Andy. We need to probe the shit out of Uranus. That was for you. This makes me That so, was all for you. It really does make me so happy. Yeah. I don't know what that says about me, but there you go. Um, <clears throat> um, yeah, so anyway, it is important, uh, most of, as he, as he continues to say, most of the more than a thousand plants discovered around other stars are similar in size to Uranus. Um, the others are, you know, similar in size to your mom. Wow. <laughs> Uh, they are too far for us to be able to measure their rotational profiles for the foreseeable future, but with an improved knowledge about Uranus, <clears throat> we might be a <laughs> better able to draw conclusions about their interior structure. We have other science stories, right? Because I feel like this is not <laughs> we, we a have science, other science story, <laughs> especially with the especially with the name drop there. Uh. Okay, okay you, so the next one's going to be completely mind-blowing. Can, can Thank you, BuzzFeed. Can can you pronounce this doctor's name? This scientist's name? Uh, what, in there? Yeah, Karkoshka? Yes, hold on. I'll give it to you. <laughs> Eric? Karkoshka. Yeah, Karkoshka. Kar Karkoshka? Yes. Karkoshka. Okay, there we go. Karkoshka I mean, is talking about do. Uranus. The name drop I was talking about was when you said the other ones are as big as your mom. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I, I just had to, I had to go there because, again, 12, 12 years old. So, um, <clears throat> apparently, the moving on from Uranus, because, you know, obviously we need to do that. Uh, an article out in The Atlantic, uh, it, it provided a little interesting reading. This, uh, yeah, I, I didn't have any good place to add this in, but this was from December 6th. Uh, self-control is just empathy with your future self. Just the headline alone, though it does sound a great deal like a fortune cookie or something Deepak Chopra would tweet about, it leads me, it does lead to like a foregone conclusion. It's like, yeah, that's, that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, most often headlines don't necessarily make sense in that way. Yeah. But, yeah. 
this this makes it makes a bit of sense anyway. Of course, those of you that for some reason <clears throat> don't know what either self control is or what empathy is, or maybe put your hand down, or what your future might hold. <laughs> uh, empathy is just being able to understand or even perhaps feel what someone else is feeling. So we've got these little things in our brains called mirror neurons. And when we see somebody in pain, we also experience a, a kind of reflection of that pain as well. Um, people that do not have a great deal of empathy sometimes end up being serial killers, sociopaths, things like that. You know, people with, they may not have a great deal of self-control. So. Well, as the great Deepak Chopra probably said, thanks to the wisdom of Chopra, the physical world constructs a jumble of possibilities. I hate that those jumbles are actually probably more accurate than the things he's actually saying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, here's my thought. Okay. Self-control is empathy for your future self in the same exact way not having self-control is empathy for your future self. And, and here's my thing, okay? Uh, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to follow you. I'm presented with an entire package full of Oreo cookies. I okay. either have the self-control to not eat them because I know my future self is going to be upset that eating a whole package of cookies is going to make him fatter than he already is. Or yeah. I don't have the self-control because I understand that my future self is going to enjoy the shit out of the fact that I just ate an entire package of Oreo cookies. Either way, I'm having empathy what? with my future self. No, or third no. possibility. I, well, third I, possibility. I, Your future self yeah. is depressed and doesn't give a crap anymore and says eat the damn cookies anyways. Yeah, there is that. Yeah. <laughs> no, the, my future self... You know, is going to die with the heat death of the universe, and everything is everything is meaningless and a nihilist concept. Well, I was going to you know, say, that, then, I mean, <laughs> then you're being nihilistic. You're not. It's not coming down to a self control or lack of self control. I'm just talking about those those two specifics. Well, as, like as a nihilist, you wouldn't care about self control or about empathy or about anything, including that package of Oreos. So you're only living in the now. So you might as well just eat it. But that's the thing. You're living in the now by eating the Oreos. So how you feel, because let's... Okay. I've eaten an entire package of Oreos. I'll admit it. I'll, I'll admit that freely. I have not. I have. I did not feel really good shortly after that. <laughs> I did not have a great deal of... Uh, I obviously did not have self-control. And I did not care about my future self in those moments. It was but bad. But at that point, you already were your future self. Yeah, you're splitting hairs. Uh, you're splitting fourth-dimensional hairs. I don't know that I am, because if the self-control... Like, because you're not... You're not debating self-control once you've already eaten the cookies. Once the cookies are gone, you're in your future self. That's the person that you had empathy for, well, or, no, it's, or didn't it's have in, empathy for. No, it's intention. It's intention. Because you intend, when you sit down, I'm going to eat this whole package of Oreos. <laughs> I'm gonna, th these are mine. I'm eating them right now. For whatever reasons you might have, you're going to eat them right now. Okay, but if I throw the wrench into that plan of I've sat down with a package of Oreos 
both one with the intention of eating the whole thing and not with the intention of eating the whole thing. And yeah. in both scenarios, the whole thing got ate. <laughs> well, you may just have a junk food problem. I, I also may just have a junk food problem. Uh, but, you know, I think with empathy and the future, what you, it is all about the intention you know, what your intent is. At least that's probably what the courts would say, right? You know, premeditation. I premeditatedly murdered that package of Oreos. <laughs> I completely meant to kill it by ingesting it and adding its cultural uniqueness to my own. Okay, but then it begs the question of, because you premeditatedly murdered that package of Oreos, yeah. you had the self-control to only murder that package of Oreos. You didn't then move on to the box of donuts on your counter or the Twinkies you hide behind the books on the top shelf. I would say I would say that the need for murder was then satiated <laughs> no, by no, the package no, of see, Oreos. No, <laughs> because see, you're then you're a full murder satiated. He's saying you didn't feel the need to do it. I'm just saying you lack the fortitude, man. That, yes, that may be the case. That may be the case. I was at my limit. When it comes to <laughs> eating, there is no lack of fortitude. I'll keep going whether I'm in pain or not. But there's a reason why when you said people who don't feel either of these things, I yeah. raised my hand and you asked me to put it down. <laughs> oh, so, okay, okay. So case in point, we have we have Fred. Okay. <laughs> And we have Podcat, who is uh, invading for its personal space. <clears throat> so More anyway, so than usual tonight. We've been we've been speaking. I don't think he feels particularly great. He's been puking all over the place. So you know, like cats do. Um, so we've 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 already spoken at length now about what we think this article might be about. But in here, uh, let's see. Uh, the same part of our brain that allows us to step into the shoes of others also helps us reach them. Yeah restrain ourselves uh like you've seen the video before a stream of kids confronted with a single alluring marshmallow if they can resist eating it for 15 minutes they'll get two some do others cave almost immediately this marshmallow test first conducted in 19 in the 1960s perfectly illustrates i don't know about perfectly perfectly illustrates the ongoing war between impulsivity and self-control the kids have to tamp down their immediate desires and focus on long-term goals an ability that correlates with their later health wealth and academic success and that is supposedly controlled by their front part of the brain that prefrontal cortex <clears throat> but a new study by Alexander Stoutsik, yeah, I think I did that one, at the University of Zurich, suggests that self-control is also influenced by another region of the brain, and one that casts this uh, ability in a different light. Ooh. Of course, we're not getting there yet, but here we go. Okay. Press your right index finger to the top of your right ear. It okay, says so where it meets your something head. in the way. Okay, so there, there you go. Okay, you're now pointing at your right temporal parietal junction. This area has long been linked to empathy and selflessness, but Stoutschek, by using magnetic fields, so an MRI, to briefly shut down. Oh wait, no, he didn't just scan. He actually shut down. Shut yeah. down the particular uh, 
temporal parietal junction has shown that it's also involved in self-control. Oh. So are they just shoving marshmallow-eating kids into this thing and shutting down parts of their brain for science? No, we only did that in the 60s. That. No, we only did that in the 60s. This, this is the year 2016. We do other things. <laughs> um, I, I just It's interesting that you can actually shut down someone's centers of self-control. Okay, a bit of David coming into me here now. Yeah, I was waiting. It's like, um, if only David was here, you know. Let's go. That's actually, I don't know, Fred, you should be jumping on this, because this gets in the whole, you know, biological robot thing and just being incredibly dangerous. I've spoken my piece. None of you want to listen. No, none of you want to listen to me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to prepare quietly, and when the shit hits the fan... I will be telling you I told you so, but uh, I will also be prepared to save your flesh body asses. Oh, that's but fine. But the difference I won't that have is a flesh body. I can see by the robot <laughs> coming. A reprogrammed human's a different story now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so <clears throat> the, the article then goes on to say, well, well this all makes perfect sense. <clears throat> Empathy depends on your ability to overcome your own perspective, appreciate someone else's, and step into their shoes. Self-control is essentially the same skill, except that those other shoes belong to your future self, a removed and hypothetical entity who might as well be a different person. So think of self-control as a kind of temporal selflessness. Temporal selflessness as self-control? It's present you taking a hint to help out future you. I think that's going to be a tough sell for kids. And see, that's, that's that's a tough sell. That's where I disagree with the study they they reference in the beginning. And this is, I mean, it may just be, I might be super devil's advocate lately or something. But here's my thought: we it, need that on the show. Go it, ahead. In that study, is you are presenting these kids with a single marshmallow, and you yep. are telling them if. You wait 15 minutes, I will give you another marshmallow. Coincidentally, this is very much like a study um, they used in the movie The Five-Year Engagement uh, with donuts instead, in which they had like day-old donuts and they told everybody, uh, oh, just wait, I'll, those are yesterday's donuts, I'll bring in new ones. And um, in the movie, they basically said that the study, people who didn't wait for the new donuts, who ate the old donuts, ended up uh, being less successful and things like that. It's um, the same test, yeah. Yeah, it, it was essentially the same test. Yeah. I, I think it's kind of cool to know that it actually was based off of a real study mm -hmm. um but you present these children with a marshmallow and you tell them if you don't eat it in 15 minutes we'll give you a second one and then later on they say the kids have to tamp down their immediate desires and focus on long-term goals and ability that correlates with their later health wealth and academic success now i am not well versed in a lot of studies but i'm fairly certain that marshmallows neither correlate with health wealth or academic success it's only what the marshmallows represent. And so well, if I eat the could, one marshmallow now, I'm showing self-control to my future self because I'm not giving myself diabetes by eating two marshmallows. Yeah, well, but kids don't know what But the counter to that is, I'm saying, and you're sort of pointing out, but I look at the marshmallows and go, okay, if you don't, if you don't overanalyze things, you don't take it too far, okay, the study looks fine. But the, the kids who just gave in to their impulses immediately and had the marshmallow – and didn't get the second one, well, what if they actually only wanted one? I don't know those kids. But it's it's a data point that is yeah, that's valid. True. That's the, true. What yeah. if, I don't care about the one I might get in 15 minutes, I only want the one, and it's right there, mine. 
Well, not, well not to I mention guess the that control group would be the ones that that are asked whether or not they wanted another one. You know, we'd have to look back. Yeah, you'd study. have to know mm-hmm. the controls and everything. But yeah. it also comes down to inner biases. You know, do you have any of those kids in there that have a distrust towards adults? You know, maybe the adults in their lives aren't the most trustworthy, per- you know, people. Maybe and there's so, a razor blade in that second second marshmallow. Or, it, or not even that far psycho um that it's just (laughs) (laughs) just that i can't trust you when you say you're going to give me something extra so if you tell me it's coming in 15 minutes i'm not going to take that time to wait i'm just going to eat this now because i don't know that you're going to bring me another one you know it's just that level of trust factor oh so so you think that you know there's a potential that they've already been tainted and jaded by life possibly (laughs) as opposed to being a young innocent that says I'm just going to trust this person that says that they're going to give me a marshmallow. It's right here in front and, of me, and so they're probably going to give it to me. While you can give me 20 examples of young innocents who will just say, hey, I'm going to give you a marshmallow in 15 minutes, and not only will that kid be like, cool, 15-minute marshmallow, they'll also forget about the 15-minute marshmallow, so you no longer have to provide it. I will also be able to show you that old soul child who are like, I'll give you a marshmallow in 15 minutes, and they're like, I've kind of already waited like six years for this marshmallow. I think you should give it to me now. Let's just get that out of the way. Wow. Wow. Okay. Love it. That's an interesting kind of kind of person right there. Hmm. Okay. So um, I feel like you created that interesting kind of person. What? I, really? If I tried to pull some Wh- stuff like this. Which one? On Ella. <laughs> oh. <laughs> if we um, tried this same experiment. Ella's an interesting child. Yeah. Um, hmm. We should try it tomorrow. I have a bag of marshmallows. Okay. <laughs> okay. So we're going to table this discussion, and we'll get back. <laughs> we, we're, we're bringing the, the 60s show, we will have to the 2016. We, we will actually run a uh, a double blind, you know, kind of trial here. Um, I have two children, so there there's the double, but not so blind, I guess. Uh, and we'll we'll and run, actually by the time the we'll next show that. comes, if we wait, my kids will be here on Monday. And we can run it on all four of them. Okay. And that's go. that's an age group that goes all the way from 6 to 13. Excellent. Excellent. We can see how it goes. Okay. There you go, folks. We're, we're going to do science for you. We'll have our own feedback. That's right. With kids. Because, come on. Have kids. Manipulate them. For <laughs> science. Know, test them for science. Absolutely. Why not? So we'll we'll uh, we'll table this discussion and we'll get back to you. All right. So um, eh, um, we got some bad news. Uh, we've discussed it at length on previous shows about how methane is a a much worse greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. In fact, it's twenty times as much. Um, apparently. We have kind of dropped the ball, and we've only been looking at carbon. We haven't been looking and monitoring as much of uh, the methane release that's going into the atmosphere. We've known, of course, that methane is a very powerful um, greenhouse gas, especially as it's uh, coming out of the burps and farts from all the cattle that we have, you know, they're actually yeah, cow patties, cow pastures <clears throat> actually produce a lot of methane. They did that, yeah. and I think. Figured that out in like the 80s or 90s, and it kind of just kind of went under the radar after it came out. Well, that's because you got uh, you know beef 
Beef is big business, and beef it, is big business, and we like to eat yeah, beef. Yeah, people love it. Yeah, unfortunately, it's kind of helping to kill the planet, or at least kill the usefulness of the planet to us. That's that's really how it is. <clears throat> Planet's not going anywhere, but it's it's not going to be very habitable for us. So emissions of the powerful greenhouse gas methane have surged in the past decade, threatening to thwart global attempts to combat climate change. Scientists have been surprised by the surge, which they shouldn't have been, but were anyway, which began just over 10 years ago in 2007, and then was boosted even further in 2014 and 2015. Concentrations of methane in the atmosphere over those two years alone rose by more than 20 parts per billion, bringing the total to 1,830 parts per billion. This is a cause for alarm among global warming scientists because emissions of the gas warm the planet by more than 20 times as much as similar volumes of carbon dioxide. In the meantime, emissions of carbon dioxide, the main component of man-made greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, have been leveling off. The new research published in the peer-reviewed journal Environmental Research Letters suggests that world's attempts to control greenhouse gases have failed to take into account the startling rise in methane. The authors of the 2016 Global Methane Budget, really, a report found that in the early years of the century, concentrations of methane rose by only about 0.5 parts per billion each year, compared with the 10 in 2014 and 2015. That's significant. What's what's an order of magnitude? Is it a factor of 10? Is it a factor of 100? I can't I can't remember what an order of magnitude actually is. About 10 times different in quantity. Yes. So this is an order of magnitude. If values differ by two orders of magnitude, they differ by a factor of about 100. Yeah. So it's 10 times 10 times 10. It's that kind of build. Ugh. Okay. So there you go. Uh, the scientists speculate that agriculture may be the main source of the additional methane that has yeah. been recorded. Yep. <clears throat> However, they cannot be sure of all the sources owing to a lack of monitoring. At least a third of the methane comes from the exploitation of fossil fuels, including fracking and oil drilling and some coal mining, where methane is viewed viewed as a waste gas and is frequently allowed to escape or, in some cases, flared off, which is less harmful. Unlike carbon dioxide emissions, however, which have been tracked in various ways since 1950s, emissions of methane are poorly understood and could represent a threat that scientists have not accounted for. This is bad, okay? Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> we've, uh, we've spoken also about uh, as the oceans warm deep sea sequestration of both carbon dioxide and methane has been escalating. It doesn't take a whole lot for that, uh, for it to start to percolate out of the sequestered environment down there. The, the cold and the pressure is keeping it, keeping it intact. But as just another degree of change, even parts of a degree, it's starting to release. And of course, then you get this slippery slope domino kind of effect going where it runs away. Um, it's bad. So, I like eating meat. This is a problem. 
I think we'll grow up in lab soon. I was gonna say I think yeah. we need to be focused more on the lab grown stuff and getting the price point on that down to where it becomes more affordable. Um, you know, that that's one of those things where basically every step forward that we seem to be right on the precipice for in terms of like clean energy or um lab grown foods, um, genetically modified um, you know, foods and things like that. Yeah. There's always that backlash of, but this existing, you know, company or, or this existing, um, organization, they're going to take a hit. Welcome to America. That's, yeah. that's how we've always grown. Unfortunately, companies die out and it seems like for whatever reason, we've gotten to a point where organizations or, or corporations feel like they have the right to continue existing even after the technology has passed them by. Yeah, it's the uh, the car manufacturers subsidizing buggy whip, you know, producers because, you know, they're not necessary anymore. But for some reason, we got to keep those buggy whip manufacturers employed. Yeah. <clears throat> um, this is definitely a problem. I don't see a way around this. You know, we've, we've spoken at ad nauseum about what to do about CO2, why the government is, you know, dragging their heels on it and, you know, the regulations that have been put in place on power plants and cars to lower CO2 emissions. And then we haven't talked at all, and nobody has, about lowering methane emissions or what to do about that. It's just been avoided, just not even talking about it. And it's 20 times worse than what we're dealing with. And the, the industries that are producing it are those that are already <clears throat> very low margin, you know, to, to use economics as a, as, a, as a fulcrum on this one. They're not making a lot of money on each unit of whatever it happens to be. If it's beef or, or any cattle or rice production or any any farm laden thing, agriculture is it's terribly important, but it also ends up getting subsidized a lot by the government. You know, they're getting subsidies, some in some cases to not grow anything, in some cases to grow one crop in particular, you know, any number of reasons. It's it's a, a big convoluted mess. And we've seen a lot of individual mom and pop shop farms go under because they can't they can't cut it. The big factory farms, those are the ones that are really keeping us fed. They're the ones putting the food on the table, or at least making the food that ends up on our table. <clears throat> so if we're going to start to well, let's say if we had a government that was interested in actually changing what we're doing about climate change and focusing on things that actually have a big impact, then logically <clears throat> we would do something about the methane production of, well, predominantly agriculture, certainly fracking and coal producers. But, you know, we've seen, we've already seen the backlash from those industries, the energy sector is, is very reluctant to change anything. And it takes serious legislation to actually make that happen. And they throw gobs and gobs of money at it to make it go away. 
the big ag, you know, it might be sugar, you know, big sugar. They they definitely produce plenty of methane, I'm sure, in the in the production of it. They're they can only throw just so much money at the problem to make it go away. And the money that they don't throw at it, they would then have to put into a system to reclaim the methane or to divert it somehow, because it's still going to be part of the process. You know, we're not going to simply cease its existence. It's going to be a problem, so you have to then cope with the problem, make it less so. <clears throat> we could turn methane into a fuel. You know, there, there are many, many farmers that they have all the, <laughs> all the waste from the uh, the cows and all cattle and whatever it happens to be pigs etc and they put all that into into like a cesspool kind of thing and they they let it ferment there and they capture the methane and actually power the entire farm and some of the other uh, surrounding residences and maybe other farms they actually provide power based on that methane capture. But that is a very entrepreneurial kind of spirit. And that's not something that's mandated. It's not something that's necessarily even government subsidized or anything. That's just some guy being real smart with the resources that he has and figuring out what he can do. You know, the, the kind of guy that you're going to see on an old episode of Dirty Jobs making, uh, you know, cow patties into flower pots kind of thing. Um, that guy was awesome. <laughs> so... Now we're getting into, we're just discovering that we've dropped the ball on a much worse climate change model. And that that's going to simply get worse as time, time progresses. Because as the, as the permafrost melts, that's releasing methane. As, as the, the waters warm, the, the low oceans, the deep water oceans and, and the, the seafloor itself is releasing methane. That's just going to get worse and worse and worse. It's going to, again, be one of those orders of magnitude kind of change. And it's not going to go away very quickly. Methane stays in the atmosphere longer. And now we have an administration that is hell-bent on making all of those changes go away. And that's just on carbon. Yeah, you would have to convince them that the methane is a problem. We seem to have to convince them that science is real. And that's obviously a problem. So, kind of a down note, because there's not much that we can do about this. Tell a friend. Tell a voter. Yeah, tell a congressman. Do what you can. Because the people that make the decisions... The ones that just got elected don't think that this is a problem. If you think it's a problem, you need to do something about it. So talk to your representatives. Get talk to other people. You know, I'm I'm talking to you, so I'm already talking to other people. But I will continue to do so because it's kind of a pet project. Uh, this is this is bad. If if you have that empathy for your future self or for the future selves of like the little ones that you happen to have, you know, nearby, you know. I do believe that the children are our future. Then you should work towards leaving the world as a better place than when you found it. This is not that. So, 
I've exhausted that topic. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, there's not really much we can do yet without money and research. So, yeah, talk. Okay, yep. Do you have anything else, Fred? Well, I mean, I think where the research should start is in those scenarios where you've got farms that are producing power for themselves and outliers, you know, based off that methane, Mm -hmm. that's a great model. You know, that's obviously where you're going to want to start. I don't think that if, you know, all of a sudden it's like, oh, crap, we dropped the ball on, you know, keeping track of what methane is actually doing to the climate and you're going to come into this blind. Yeah, there's a lot of study that needs to be done, but you have an example of how it can be used usefully. And you can not only study what's being done with it, but the byproduct of what's being done with it. So he's using this methane to provide power for his entire farm and outliers what is happening as a byproduct of him using the methane to right. determine if what he's doing will actually help with what we've got in the atmosphere, if there's a way to redirect it, if there's, you know, a way to, to, to capture it or, or, or use what we've already polluted, um, with and then direct that towards, you know, because like you said, a lot of times these, um, the subsidies that go to farms, like this would need to be, a major one, you know, when mm-hmm. you start, you know, the farms that have that ability, you start subsidizing this. Okay. This is what you're going to do. You're going to install this cesspool. This is how you're going to do it. It's going to give you this subsidy to do this, but it's also going to save you on electric and yeah. those with, type of things. With agriculture, the, you have to, you have to provide the carrot. They don't operate on a, a carrot stick model because if you, if all you do is punish them, then they go out of business and you have to have food. Right. So they, they work on, on giving them a, a beneficial reason to them, something that's in their best interest financially to do it with. So you can't carb, you can't methane tax a farmer, but you can methane tax an energy producer, you know, a coal mine, you know, strip mines, you know, any of those. You can provide a stick there where you can't do that same thing to agriculture because, again, it's all about the margins. They can't afford that. But if what you're doing in that scenario is you're going to be taxed at this percentage or, you know, we'll give you the the push to get you where you need to be. But after Mm -hmm. that, you're going to be taxed at this percentage. But what was your energy cost beforehand? You know, just like just like when you buy any new appliance and you're looking at the differences on what your old appliance was costing you per year and what it's saving you now and the benefits that you're you're getting. Yes, you're paying that that money up front, you know, your six hundred dollars for your washing machine, but here's what you're gonna save over, you know, your normal, you know, over over the cost of, you know, its electrical life, you know, in, in those type of scenarios. And that's where you would have to balance out like you said, the the benefit to yeah. agriculture. Of course, also, we're going to end up at some point here where it, it will be species survival. I don't care what it costs, get it done. But again, the only way that that happens is with a government that just does it. It has to be, the species survival thing has to be government-oriented. Right, and that that's obviously a, a huge part of the problem where we're at right now right. is that in order for it to be – see, like right now, species survival will only come too late. Yeah. So if, if let's say, you speed up the timetable 
to in the next four years, we're looking at a species survival type scenario mm-hmm. that our government would have to look at. It's only going to happen too late. It's only going to be, we need to do this right now because we're going to die in right. three years, not we need to do this right now because we might die in three years, but it's still savable. So our current government situation is not a species survival model no. um, at all. It's capitalism. They right. Profit, profit, profit. You know, do anything you can for that. And, and honestly, what they would end up doing is profit, profit, profit. Oh, crap. We really screwed this up. Coffins, coffins, coffins. Profit, profit, profit. Well, it goes back to the other article Damn. we just had about empathy. They are living in the they are living in the now, the yeah. now moment. What can I do now? They don't care about the future. Yeah, yeah, but even in in, I mean, even in that that empathy for future is still just empathy for future self. So, I mean, I'm sure in while right. it, while it doesn't it doesn't show that he has any self control to us if trump has self control it's it's only empathy for his future self he doesn't give a shit about me my future self is not in his line of empathy yeah that is pretty much the case because it the thing is that they also have to be selfless as opposed to selfish which you know? apparently they said was all in that same spot right. but you know, obviously there's going to be, I mean, there's got to be differing levels of, like, I can be empathetic, but not as selfless as other people. Well, that, then you end up with that, the whole narcissism thing, with only being concerned with yourself, whether that be past, present, or future. So, yes, you're empathetic towards your future self in making the, yourself more successful, because that feeds directly into your current narcissism about how awesome you are. And and that let's let's be honest, a lot of politicians are very narcissistic. They have to be on a little bit of that psychopathic bend. Well, yeah, I mean the entire you know, in order to even want to have the job. The entire track to getting the job mm-hmm. is selling how awesome you are and stepping to on other, other people. people. Yeah. yeah, it 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 is that. And I mean, I have been accused shocking of that whole narcissism thing in the past um it may be one of those things where like if you are you don't see it you know type thing yeah and and i think a lot of that comes down to a self-preservation type deal you know i'm not in narcissistic in that way that i think i'm better than everyone else yes i do um i'm in that way of like I need to do these things to make sure that I survive. And in my survival, it will benefit the people around me. Now, whether that's a true statement or not, that's the thought that rings through, I think, a fair number of people's heads yeah. when they have those those same thoughts. So maybe kind of like, um, you know, to bring it to a pop culture reference, uh, with Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man, you know, he only became Iron Man to save himself. Right. But he only realized that he needed to save himself from his own stuff when right. he was put in danger. So once he was put in danger, then that that expanded his empathy. Right. It opened his eyes it to see what, up, what yeah. his stuff was actually being used for or right. or, or to what ends um, he, his influence was having on the world that he wasn't fully aware of from inside a boardroom. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I can see that. Uh, where I was 
um, I, I thought I was trying to take that somewhere specific, um, in, in regards to like self-preservation and then that, um, well, in order to, it, there's self-preservation and then there's species survival. Right. So the species survival takes more of the root of planting a tree that you will never experience the shade from. And having that forethought and the empathy for others and that futurist ideal that is beyond yourself entirely. Because right. you will never see that happen because it's such a long-term goal. You won't ever see that tree grow up you know, in our own lifetimes. So you have to be a particular type of person to understand that benefit. You have to have the wisdom to do so. I see very little of that in our current form of government. Right. They're, they're the it. type of people that are self-preservationists where it's real hot and sunny where I'm at right now. I'm just going to buy the full-grown tree and yeah. put it in so that by the time the future gets here, this tree's withered and died. You know, it, it's no longer useful in that, in that same way. I want my future now. That kind of thinking. Right. But the future they want is a future that was projected in 1950, not a future that's being provided to them in 2016. Yeah. They want the, the world of tomorrow that was promised them at the, you know, the world's fairs and things yeah, like that. Yeah. What, what Epcot was when it was first created. Yeah. That's, that's the future that <clears throat> they want. But the future they're going to get is going to look an awful lot like Blade Runner. Which is getting a sequel, so I mean, yeah. Yeah, but... More foreshadowing. Dark and deep. Ooh, lots of, lots of smoke. So we're going to have the smog and everything. And, yeah. and don't oh. forget new suits. Mushroom clouds. Yeah. <sighs> so... I don't know what to say about, about that. I mean, we've, we've talked, we've talked about it enough that I think that we've probably said everything that there is to say about it. And I guess we can move on to the last story in this segment. The universe is far bigger than we thought. And it has 10 times more galaxies. This is out on futurism. Uh, the, the down and dirty of it is it turns out that the observable, observable universe has at least 10 times more galaxies than the mid-1990s Hubble deep field images count of about 100 to 200 billion. The development of more advanced space telescopes in the future could unveil even more of the observable universe. You say you have all the stuff we've seen, all the galaxies we've seen, is roughly maybe 10% of the actual universe. Over 90% of the galaxies have yet to be studied. They're just too faint to be seen clearly. Hubblecast 96, how many galaxies are there? There's a little... <clears throat> let's, see, let's see if this will play. The Milky Way galaxy is our cosmic home, but it is far from being the only so galaxy pulling out of the Milky Way. To yeah, get it a actually is saying something. The composition it. and evolution of our universe... Astronomers try to answer a deceptively simple question. How many galaxies are there in the universe? Okay, and then we get into a little Hubblecast thing. Episode 96. I didn't even know there was a Hubblecast. No, that's actually kind of really cool. Yeah. So how many galaxies are there? 
more On awesome dark shots from NASA. The Milky Way can be seen as a glowing band across the night sky. And for a long time, it was thought that the entire universe consisted of our galaxy alone. This only changed in 1924, in the year that Edwin Hubble identified variable stars in several spiral nebulae. nebulae. He used these stars to calculate the distances to these nebulae. His observations proved that these stars were far too distant to belong to our Milky Way. They instead were members of other galaxies, far outside the Milky Way. Since then, astronomers have tried to find out just how many galaxies there are in the observable universe. Keep going. A reliable first estimate could only be made after the Hubble Deep Field was observed in 1995. This was the first real deep look into the universe, and it revealed hundreds of galaxies that had never been seen before. Additional deep observations with Hubble and other instruments followed, detecting even fainter and more distant galaxies. What the deep field did was they, they found a patch of what seemed to be empty sky, and they'd point the Hubble or whatever space telescope it happened to be on it, and they would just leave it focused on that area for a long time. And that gave it enough time for all the light to be collected so that they actually got a really decent picture of it. So it basically changing the exposure time was what allowed them to see all these other galaxies just far, far away. Uh, and then they keep doing that over and over again. Um, this is this is quite the long thing. We're about halfway through it. Uh, but, you know, she's going to put me to sleep. She's so, got a very soothing voice. Very soothing voice. And apparently I've been mispronouncing Nebula for this entire time, and it should be Nebulae. So that's interesting. Unless she's just wrong. but British. Yeah, I guess. I guess the Hubble cast is British. I, I didn't. Who knew? Who knew? Somebody, not I. Uh, I would be really disappointed if a show called Hubblecast was mispronouncing Nebulae versus Nebula. Yeah, that's why I think it's a, well, I'm wrong. <laughs> uh, the map recreates as accurately as possible different times in the universe's history, as far back as 13 billion years in its past. Accordingly, when the universe was several billion years younger than today, it contained 10 more galaxies per unit volume. Galaxies decrease in number and increase in size as the billion years go by. This gives us a verification of the so-called top-down formation of structures of the universe. That's interesting. Oh, and uh, nebulae is the plural. Oh. Okay, so just a nebula versus multiple nebulae. Oh. Yes. Curse you, language. Curse you. (laughs) That's okay. going to come up later, by the way. <laughs> what, language? Yes. <laughs> of course it will. But not in this episode. Um, Actually, yeah. Well, okay, it, yeah. it will? In this episode, but not this subset? On the show, not this particular episode. Yeah, not, not, this, not this segment. Not this not segment. The segment. Okay. Um, 
Oliver's Paradox, O-L-B-E-R-S, Paradox. Uh, why the night sky remains dark despite the many stars. I did not know about this paradox, but okay, let's let's get into it. Um, the, the myriad of stars within the billions of galaxies invisible to the human eye because of red shifting of light, the universe's dynamic nature, and intergalactic dust and gas absorbing light. This keeps the night sky mostly dark, keeping the entire night sky mostly dark. Oh, look. They did it twice. <clears throat> um, so that's interesting. I, I did not know about Albers Paradox, but that could be useful later. Uh, bigger space for life. It boggles the mind that over 90% of the galaxies in the universe have yet to be studied. Who knows what interesting properties we will find when we observe these galaxies with the next generation of telescopes, explains Consilis about the far-reaching implications of the new results. Uh, yeah, this is going to be great. And we're going to have the James Webb Space Telescope uh, is going to be launched. Uh, well, it's actually going to go online in 2018. So that's going to be amazing, amazing stuff. You know, Hubble is already... Jeez, when did Hubble go up? It's It's been I up there for think. a long time. Uh, let's see. We have the Internet. I, sh- I should ask these questions to the Internet. Yeah, that's that. Uh, April 24th, 1990. <laughs> Aboard Space Shuttle Discovery. There we go. Is that thing anytime anybody asks me a question, and I'll just look at them and be like, you know you have a little magic box You've in your the, pocket yeah, that yeah. is a computer and answers questions, yeah. right? You got the Google machine there. So so the Hubble has been doing this stuff. Well, it did it did get glasses at one point, and it has been upgraded a couple times. But it's been up there since 1990. That's 26 years. Oh, wow, 26 years. 26 years we've had a space telescope, guys. That's really cool just to think about. We've had a space telescope for 26 years. Which means that, boy, we probably need a new one with the advances in technology. Probably. (laughs) That's why the old one got glasses. That's well, yeah. I think it was a, a grinding problem in the mirror. Um, if I don't miss my uh, my guess on that one, but there we go. So, yeah, we're gonna get some uh, some interesting information. And uh, in, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention uh, David's favorite uh, favorite quote, and that's the "We got to get off this rock." There's a lot to see out there, folks. So. Support your local space mission. Yeah. Rocketeers for the win. Support your local Elon Musk and his hyperspace drive ambitions. (laughs) Support your local crazy billionaire. (laughs) Unless you live in New York, don't... Yeah, no. Yeah, not that billionaire. He's crazy, but for other reasons. Um, Okay. So if you have enjoyed what we do here and would like to help us out, there are a few ways. You can donate to the show through patreon.com slash radio and get early access to show content. If you want to do a one-time donation, there's a donate button on the website, too. That's out at just O-R-L-Y-R-A-D-I-O O-R-L-Y-R-A-D-I-O dot com. Also, reviews on iTunes, that always helps gain audience. Uh, they've got those algorithms and things like that. And in order to beat those algorithms, we have to have more reviews. So get out there and, and do that for us, would you? That'd be wonderful. And let us know about it so we can thank you. Uh, also, 
Tell someone about the show. Word of mouth advertising works. It always has and it always will. So let other people know what we've been up to and uh, and that you're excited to show it to them. You know, that'd be wonderful. Let's let's do that. And, of course, you can engage with us directly. Send us a message on uh, whatever social media platform you like or the electronic mail at Podcast at gmail.com. Or if you're the more talkative sort, there's 470-222-6759. That's always ready to take your call or your text. Thank you for choosing to waste your valuable time on us. This has been O'Reilly Radio, part of the Random Acts Company. This work is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 United States License, including the music Rocket and Pemgia. Created by Kevin McLeod of Incomptech.com. <laughs>